Welcome back, everyone. I'll do my little greeting again. You can do that if you wish. And if it works for you, uh, it's nice to see the video on so I can see people as I'm speaking. I'll aim to give, uh, again, a talk and have a discussion in the last part of the hour, you know, hopefully 15, 20 minutes. <clears throat> Yeah, so if, again, if it works to have your video on, that's, that's, that, that's nice. So I want to continue with a theme that I brought up three weeks ago when I was last here. And this is the theme of practicing with fear. This is really a, a central part of our practice, one that is um, sometimes very alive for us. And so what I want to do further today is go into more depth on exploring the nature of fear, the different forms that it takes, what the different contents are of fear. It really is such a crucial part of our practice. A lot of our fears are conscious, and many of them are unconscious. And part of practice is to bring the unconscious material into view. I think I mentioned the last time I was here that one of my discoveries in practice, which didn't occur for a while, didn't occur till I'd been practicing for 10 years, uh, was that I found that there was a way that I was actually moment to moment afraid of the present moment, that I would try to control the present moment. And there was a kind of fear of simply being open to the present moment as it was. It was a pattern, uh, really, we could say, of fear that had probably been there since I was very young. But if you had asked me, are you afraid of being in the present moment? Before that, I probably would have said no. In other words, there was a kind of fear that I wasn't really aware of, that I wasn't really tracking. And so fear is like that. It has a variety of forms. Some of them are very, very apparent. You know, when I'm uh, hiking and near a cliff, uh, the fear will be very palpable. And then other kinds of fears which are relatively unconscious or which only surface with certain um, stimuli. And so I want to continue exploring that um, today. You know, originally the theme, I, I had a kind of a segue with the theme that I had talked about, uh, I think the week before my last time here, when I explored um, the fact that Passover, Easter, and Ramadan were all happening. And I, I, I also looked at how meeting fear was such an important part of all three of those holidays. You know, that with the liberation from slavery in terms of the story of the Exodus, there was a kind of faith that even with the very hard times, the, the fears could be met because there was some kind of... Uh, more powerful energy 
that was protective. You know, the, the, the sense of, of Yahweh, or in the Easter story, can be interpreted in many ways, but probably the most central one is that uh, death need not be feared, that there is something more powerful and more basic even than death. For the Ramadan, you know, I interpreted in terms of the uh, really, especially fears that could arise in Ramadan of the uh, can I be with these deprivations, with fasting, not even drinking water for this period of time, for the sake, can I be with the hardships that come with uh, spiritual practice? And so, different ways that the the uh, fear is met in those traditions and different ways that we'll explore um, further working with fear. And I had invited people to practice, if we, if we could remember, with the presence of fear or anxiety or the different uh, forms that it takes. And I'll you know, I'll, I'll look to hear some of what you may have explored. How many people actually did bring to mind working some with fear in the last period of time? Yeah, so a number of you. And so what, we're, what we'll be doing is we are setting out to uh, study fear. And so I'll, I'll ask Carlita to show an image. It's one of my favorite images. I have this um, framed in my study. This is from the Bread and Puppet Theater, and this is uh, a wonderful image that has been inspiring to me for a very long time. Yeah. Sorry, I was set up with the last one. I apologize. One moment. All right. There it is. So this is, again, from the Bread and Puppet Theater, probably from 20 years ago. And you, if you, I don't know if you can see the print. The story of one who set out to study fear. So thank you, Carlita. We can let that go. And so again, we'll look at it on different levels. We'll continue to explore fear when it appears in our own inner experience. We'll look at when when something like fear is skillful, when it's not skillful, you know, when it, you know, for example, when fear tells us of a present danger, uh, that is the emotion in a way being, uh, or at least if we can use it and use it and say that's uh, helpful, that's skillful, we're alerted to a danger. But there are also many aspects of fear that are unskillful. And we can see those in our own experience. We can also see those dimensions very much uh, alive in the world, in the society. People becoming fearful of changes. You know, and this again reflected in some of what happened in in Buffalo, and you know, just the you know, there there are the dimensions of those who are fearful and embrace something like white supremacy as a solution to their anxiety. And there's also just the fear now of, you know, uh, another reason to be afraid just going to a supermarket, 
just doing one's daily activities. It's so it's um, you know it's in in a way it's heartbreaking. One more one more assault, so to speak. So so again, we can see some of the dynamics of of fear in those extreme situations. So we want to look at our own experience, and we also want to see just the different venues in which uh, fear appears, and and ask how do we respond skillfully to fear when it arises in ourselves, to fear when it arises in others, in the larger world, and just how, really how, how central it is. You know, I mentioned that uh, uh, last time I gave some uh, powerful uh, guidance from, from um, some teachers, from, from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, he says, we have the power to look deeply at our fears, and then fear cannot control us. And the great, the great teacher. From the poet William Butler Yeats, to look at oneself unflinchingly takes more courage than a soldier on a battlefield. And there's something about the study and practice which is really uh, connected with our learning, connected with the fact that uh, as we engage in a process of exploration and learning and working with all the parts of ourselves, fear naturally arises at times. In fact, sometimes, and I'll come back to this, as we are developing, as we are becoming more conscious, there's actually typically some fear there as we come to new learning. As we're with the edge of our own learning, there's typically going to be some fear, some anxiety, because we're coming into something new. We're leaving aside the familiar. And that entails a certain amount of fear. So Jack Kornfield said once that uh, when we experience fear, it's a sign that we're about to learn something important. Interesting, right? That's when we're on the path of practice. If we're not practicing, which means us when we're very much caught, then fear is just more difficulty. But when we're on, when we're on a path of learning and practice, fear can actually be a sign that we're opening something up that's new. Because typically the new will come with some anxiety or fear. You know, I, I, I've uh, been very surprised just to see in myself and in others how essentially fear is fear of the unknown. And we are, we are scared of the unknown. And I've seen, again, myself and in others, how we, we actually prefer known pain to the unknown. We will stick with old patterns that don't work because we don't want to change, because the unknown in some ways is more scary. And so opening to the unknown necessarily involves being with fear. That's where the practice with fear can be so crucial. I think that's true at the individual level. It's true at the relational level, like in terms of... um, a close relationship, and I think it's true socially. So there's this inter 
play between these different dimensions of practicing with fear. And so, in many ways, the fear, fear is there, much fear is there. It's almost the counterpart of what we don't know, of our, we could say, of our deeper ignorance. That, you know, I think uh, Stephen Batchelor once said that fear is the emotional counterpart to our deep ignorance. And that the direction of our practice is increasingly towards fearlessness the counterpart of insight and wisdom. And the fact that this is challenging means that it's really important to hold all of this with with uh, compassion and kindness as much as possible. Because we're going into a hard territory. So I think I'll invite people at this point to reflect some what are some of the places where you experience fear? We could say, what are you afraid of? What kind of situations uh, bring, bring up fear? Just take a moment to reflect on that. Let me invite you now uh, to put into the chat, just in a few words, uh, places where there's fear for you at times. And Carlita, uh, we can open up the chat, and then uh, if you if you could read uh, what appears as people enter words. What, where is there fear for you? What what aspects of experience and life? Okay, some items coming in are fear of inadequacy, fear of strong emotions, fear of when there's potential harm for myself or others, fear of inadvertently causing harm in interpersonal relationships, uh, fear of cars when riding my bike. Uh, I intern at a psychiatric hospital, and I'm afraid my clients will get hurt. Uh, Fearful of success in anything. Uh, fear of feeling physical discomfort and what it could mean. Fear of public speaking. Uh, I believe uh, it's fear of losing my eyesight. Yeah. Fear of hurting somebody in a talk. Fear of working with a new doctor that works differently than a traditional MD. Thank you so much, Carlita. And let's let's save the uh, chat. I'd love to see all these. Absolutely, yeah, that'd be that'd be great. So this this range of uh, areas where where there can be fear, and of course we could we could talk uh, again at the social level. There are many ways that there is a culture of fear. I I remember times uh, very interesting. At least, at least in my own experience, when I've uh, traveled into uh, traveled to Canada, and I felt this, I I won't go so much into the roots of this, but I I had a sense that I was entering a culture that was much less violent 
than the United States. And I, I felt a certain uh, um, ease, which was not on a conscious level. It's very interesting, just in terms of what um, what's there much of the time. So, so there are cultural dimensions to this as well, or we know that there, there are settings where we have more fear or less fear. <clears throat> so how do, we, how do we bring our practice to fear? How do we cultivate mindfulness? What are, you know, so a beginning is just to explore what is going on when there, there is fear. And what, again, we want to see what's, uh, what are skillful aspects of fear and what are, what are ways that fear becomes unskillful. So I, I quoted last time uh, a very uh, helpful passage from uh, Tanis Arabiku, a, a, a monk. He said, think of a deer at night suddenly caught in a hunter's headlights. It is confused, angry, it senses danger, and that it's weak in the face of the danger it wants to escape. These five elements, confusion, aversion, a sense of danger, a sense of weakness, and a desire to escape, are present to a greater or lesser extent in every fear. The confusion and aversion are the unskillful elements. Even if the deer has many openings to escape, its confusion and aversion might cause it to miss them. The same holds true for human beings. The, pro the mistakes we commit when finding ourselves weak in the face of danger come from confusion and aversion. I, I would add also reactivity, that when we become afraid and there is some sort of confusion or delusion, and there can be also a kind of reactivity and we can get caught up in blaming and judging and negative narratives. And so that initial looking at um, aspects of fear which can be helpful and the aspects that often can be there with fear that are not helpful is a very good starting point. Knowing that, um, you know, a sense of danger may be something to um, really uh, be recognized as potentially helpful, right? Again, it's tricky because there are a lot of nuances. We can often think that there's danger when there's not really danger. But, but at least as a starting point, this is helpful. And to see that it's particularly when we get confused and deluded and reactive that the, the problems uh, occur with fear. So part of the starting point is really to look carefully at what is actually occurring in the midst of fear. You know, I once had a, a group where we studied fear for uh, several weeks, and we sort of brought up some of the body experiences and as well as the mental experience, the mental experience that can occur when there's fear. And, you know, at the level of the body, we mentioned, uh, you know, the body can go into a tight posture, can get constricted, you know, the hands can get tight, that we can, we can clench in, you know, bring to mind for yourself, what are some of the signs at the level of the body that there is fear? What happens when we're maybe anxious 
to get a dead, get to a deadline, and we we fill ourselves with a certain kind of anxiety, you know. Or at extreme levels, there can be the the heart pounding in a sense. Sometimes we we lose balance. The physiology changes. Sometimes we tend even to to shut down and have a sense of paralysis. Um, so looking at these different ways that fear manifests is part of this study of fear. And then we also want to notice, and this is particularly helpful to see what are the manifestations at the level of the mind. And this is often where we find some of the more unskillful aspects of fear. You know, um, potentially there can be fear without reactivity that goes along with clarity of mind. You know, uh, I, I don't know, I remember, I think I've told this story once or twice. When I was driving across the country from um, where I was living at the time in Ohio and moving to California, I had a car filled with possessions and I was driving and I was going through, I remember, uh, Kansas City on, I think, one of the, on the interstate, I think it was probably was Interstate 70. And I didn't know exactly what happened, but what actually happened was at, it was like 8.30 at night and I was going through uh, Kansas City on the interstate and it was a place where there was, uh, I was going, uh, kind of, it was kind of like going over a, um, gosh, almost like a little bit of a bridge-like structure and there were no breakdown lanes. And at that point, my transmission failed. And my car came to a stop in the fast lane on Route 70 without a breakdown lane around a bend. Now, you know the outcome of the story because here I am, right? <laughs> but it was, it was a, I knew it was a very dangerous situation. There was some fear, but for whatever reason, you know, I tended to attribute it to my practice, which may or may not be accurate. Um, I actually had clarity. I was not paralyzed. I knew what to do. I knew to stand a distance away from my car. And I knew to try to flag down someone to help um, kind of push my car off the next exit. And I'm fortunate that nothing happened, but I, it, it was interesting that there was clarity, not paralysis, clear thinking, and in this case it worked. It could have had a different outcome even with my clear even with my clarity. So sometimes with fear it's like that. And that was a, that was a blessing. And sometimes with fear there's reactivity. You know, when we look to our minds, one of the things we notice is that we can get very confused and we can get caught in negative narratives that we just repeat over and over again. I think I told last time how I had a retreat that was um, a powerful one because I had fear for almost all day long for 10 days in a row. And I was able to, but I was, it was in the workable range, so I was able to study it. And it was really powerful. What I noticed was, I won't go into so much the content, but I was basically really afraid 
that I wouldn't be able to live my normal life. And I was uh, just, you know, I was very confused and afraid. I was repeating a negative narrative like, you know, like, you know, things are going to just be awful. And I repeated it for most of those 10 days. But I was doing mindfulness, and so I was watching it. At a certain point, I realized that uh, I realized a few things. That I realized that my thinking was always about the future, which I didn't know, and that it was repetitive. And that after a while, I could see that, in a sense, it was diluted. I really didn't know what was going to happen in the future, but in my fearful mind, I thought that I did. Right? And it was repeated over and over and over again. The narratives were being repeated, right? The fearful narratives of some way that my life was going to turn. It's not hard to see those same dynamics in social situations, you know, with, with the situation with, with uh, the white supremacist in Buffalo, right? Just captured by a narrative that was repeated over and over again, some of it online, just repeated over and over again until he, he acted on this, you know, this um, really diluted, repetitive thought. And so that's helpful to see that we repeat these, we repeat these narratives over and over again. Again, this is what a lot in socially a lot of negative narratives are repeated and even manipulated by people who want power, right? And we have to see that. We can see that in our own minds how that works, but that's a lot of how fear works socially as well. Does that make some sense? Just these repetitive narratives repeated over and over again until people get caught up in them. It was a blessing for me to be able to watch that happening in my own mind over and over again and be able to see that it was... Uh, I was just sort of repeating it. I didn't know. But I, I got to see. I knew that this was really diluted. I could see, have enough clarity there. And so um, just to notice that that was occurring. And there's, there's a helpful model, which I've used from time to time, which can be helpful for looking at, at fear. So let's go to that second slide. This is called the Ladder of Inference, which I sometimes have taught on, which was developed by uh, the late Chris Argeris, who was, this is developed originally in the field of uh, organizational development. Chris Argeris taught, I think, at both MIT and Harvard Business School. And he developed this simply as a way of understanding how the mind works normally. And I'll just be very brief here, but the, I'm bringing this up because this also helps us make some sense of what happens when there's when there's fear. And so basically, we at the bottom of the ladder, there is what he calls observable data and experiences. So at every any given moment, there's kind of an, an almost an infinitude of possible things that we can pay attention to. At this moment, you could be really focusing on the slide of working the ladder and listening to me. You also, your mind could go in a thousand different directions. You could be thinking about uh, your next meal. You could think, be thinking about what happened yesterday. You could be, uh, you know, wondering, uh, you know, what you'll say in an upcoming discussion. You could be 
you know, wondering if you're, you know, if you should, uh, if your pants you're wearing should be washed soon, all sorts of things, right? Endless uh, observable data. Out of that, we only select a few of the data as meaningful to us. Or actually, we only select it. And then the next step is we add meaning. So you may be listening and actually paying attention to this slide and saying, oh, this is interesting. I think I want to look more at this. And then we may, as we go up the ladder, we go to different further levels of generalization. We make assumptions, we draw conclusions, we adopt beliefs, and then we take actions based on the belief. Now, this is a normal process. And yet, when there is fear, we get driven up the ladder, partly because when we're fearful, we try to make sense of a situation because we think that that will give us security. And so when I was uh, going up the ladder in my retreat, I would come, I would go quite a bit up the ladder, almost driven there by my, uh, by my overactive mind, wanting to find some meaning that would give me uh, a sense of things even if it was really a negative picture, you know, a negative picture of what would happen, you know, and I got fixated on this and I was almost like caught up the ladder, not based on good evidence, but it was where I went anyway. So this ladder is something that can apply both to healthy thinking, you know, we could think of uh, uh, empirical science as following the same pattern. We have a certain evidence and we try to have our hypotheses and generalizations really grounded on the evidence, on the data. But we also can go up the ladder in a way which is not well-based in the data, as with, my, as with my story. So that's helpful to see. We can let go of that now, uh, Carlita. So that's part of what happens in, in fear. We go, up to, we go up to generalizations. And again... Um, this often happens with manipulative politicians or demagogues. They give stories which have some relationship to the reality, but they're way overgeneralized. And so, you know, the, uh, the person in Buffalo had some notion of fear related to demographic changes, you know, in the United States, similar to what, you know, some people are saying in other countries as well. So there's some basis in reality there, but then goes way up the ladder to overgeneralized, general, you know, driven, driven by the fear. And so uh, this is part of what can happen with the fear. And so maybe to just say a few more things and we can open things up. Um, there are different forms of fear. I think I'll read, this is one of my favorite books called The Book of Qualities by a friend named Ruth Gendler. And she personifies about 50 different uh, human qualities. And I'll read the one for fear. This is fear. Fear has a large shadow, but he himself is quite small. He has a vivid imagination. Fear composes horror music in the middle of the night. <laughs> he is not very social, and he keeps to himself at political meetings. His past is a mystery. 
He warned us not to talk to each other about him, adding that there is nowhere any of us could go where he wouldn't hear us. We were quiet. When we began to talk to each other, he changed. His manners started to seem pompous, and his snarling voice sounded rehearsed. Two dragons guard Fear's mansion. One is ceramic and Chinese, the other is real. If you make it past the dragons and speak to him up close up, it is amazing to see how fragile he is. So if you get close up to Fear, you see how fragile he is. He will try to tell you stories. Be aware, he is a master of disguises and illusions. Fear almost convinced me that he was a puppet maker and that I was a marionette. Speak out boldly, look him in the eye, startle him, don't give up. Win his respect and he will never bother you with small matters. It made me think of, uh, there's a children's book called The Monster That Grew Smaller. It's about fear. It's a children's book and the monster is huge until you actually look at the monster. And this is what happens with practice with fear. Fear is the monster who grows smaller. And again, very much in, in Ruth Gendler's passage. And so helpful to see again the different forms of fear. We can have we can have fear about some difficult experience that we either are in the midst of or that we might have later. That was, I think, what was the basis for my 10 days of fear. And actually, none of it happened, right? You know, I think someone, the last time we talked, someone gave the joke that, uh, oh, my fear about all these things has been so helpful because none of them ever happened. <laughs> and so... Um, Anyway, we can look at that in a few different ways, but the, the, there can be fear about future eventualities. There can be fear about a difficult stretch. You know, one of the fears mentioned in the chat earlier was fear of getting older, right? Or it could be fear of a difficult discussion or fear of a difficult interaction or fear of, um, you know, getting COVID, fear of getting sick fear of difficult experiences. We can have fear about um, fear about having a difficult discussion in a relationship. We can have, uh, you know, we can have fears about uh, a particular type of activity. Someone mentioned in the chat fear of public speaking, which I mentioned last time. When they've done polls, fear of pu public speaking is greater uh, there's a greater number of people afraid of that than fear of death. You know, and of course, death for many of us is the, the ultimate fear. We can have fear that's related to our own wounds, our own history, you know, whether personal or um, ancestral. You know, there can be fear related to, let's say that, uh, you know, which I've seen in a number of people, uh, an example would be a person as a child had a, um, had the parents, the parents divorced when the child was, let's say, seven years old. And suddenly one of the parents was no longer around. 
and there came to be a fear of if someone gets close to me, that person will abandon me. There's a kind of a wound there, a pain, that's uh, very real from childhood. That person gets to be older, let's say is in a relationship, the partner wants to go away for the weekend, and fear arises, directly related to that wound. And so here, we'd want to look at that, but the full response would be to work to heal that wound, right? To go back into that pain and transform it, to work with it. That would be a way of dealing with the fear. In that case, the fear is intelligent, but it also can point to healing. And there are ways in which there can be, you know, again, intergenerational, intergenerational um, wounds that are there from, you know, uh, I think uh, there, was, there was a book by Joy DeGruy, and she talked about what post-traumatic uh, slavery syndrome, I think it was, you know, among African-Americans and a kind of ancestral trauma. I find that in many, many groups, right? In, I know it's there very much among people of Jewish ancestry. All of that is being accentuated with these events now, right? With the event in Buffalo or, you know, the, um, the shootings at synagogues. It, all of that, get all of those old wounds that are still there for so many of us get accentuated, right? And so healing needs to also take place on a social level as well as, you know, a, a personal level. <clears throat> There's also a really interesting way in which fear is there as we grow personally. You know, I think you can see that example maybe in, in the one about the, the uh, sense of abandonment, but even when there are not those kind of wounds, just as, as we open to more of who we are, there is typically fear. And that, that's the very interest, it's a very interesting kind of fear. What that means is that as we are on the journey of deepening in wisdom and love, fear is a natural part of the journey. That's good to know, right? It's not something that uh, means that we're off. Well, again, as in the quotation from Jack Kornfield, evidence or presence of fear can mean that I'm entering into a new territory where I'm about to learn something, right? Developmentally, as I go into something new, it's a little scary. It's as simple as that, right? It's a little bit scary, and uh, I have to work with fear and not have it paralyze me or not have it stop me from growing, not have it stop me from, from learning. And so stories of fear are very common in stories of spiritual practitioners, right? Stories of, uh, of being with fear and having a strong commitment uh, to, to work with them. I think I'll read one of them. I brought in a few of these stories. Um, this is one from uh, Milarepa. Milarepa is right here. Milarepa is one of the most beloved figures in uh, Tibetan tradition, and he lived in the mountains by himself. This is a story of him being with fear. And I'll read this selectively. 
So this is from the 12th century. But I think it's, we read so many people's stories and probably many of ours. There were times when we were willing to be with fear. Milrepa's mind became blissful and he carried some wood back up to the cave. When he arrived there, he found in the cave seven metal demons with bodies the sizes of thumbs and eyes the size of cups. Some were making fire, some were bringing water, some were grinding flour, and some sat performing various magical trips. As soon as Milarepa saw them, he became frightened. He meditated on his deity, he uttered a special mantra, performed a gaze, and aroused the presence of his protective force. He then meditated on compassion and friendliness. Nothing worked. <laughs> he thought, these might be the local deities of this place. Although I've been here for months and years, I have not praised them or given them any gifts. So he sang a song of praise. And I won't give the full song. It's a long song. At the end of it, he said, you non-human demons assembled here are obstacles. Drink this Drink this uh, cup of friendliness and compassion and be gone. So this might be parallel to when we encounter fear initially. Because what, what we'll see is Milarepa tries a bunch of things and they don't work. Because he's not really fully willing to be with the fear. And so he, uh, at first, tries to use his spiritual practices, can you see, to get rid of the fear. Is that familiar? How many of us can relate to that? I feel some fear, or it could be any difficult emotion, and I say, okay, I'll just be mindful, and it'll go away, or something like that. So that's what Milarepa does initially. Drink, drink my cup of friendliness and compassion and be gone. That thus he sang. Three of the demons went away, but the other four stayed. <laughs> So we can have that parallel to our own experience. Realizing that the four demons were obstacles, he sang the song of confidence in the experiences and views. So he gives this song about the value of spiritual practice, about the teachings and so forth. I'll read the end of it. And after doing that, he says, uh, he says, it is wonderful that you demons came today. You must come again tomorrow. From time to time, we should converse. He was still trying to make them go away. But actually, three of them went away. Three of the demons vanished like a rainbow. The remaining demon performed an imposing dance, and Milarepa thought, this one is vicious and very powerful. <laughs> Again, you can think of the counterpart in our own experience. So he sang the, another song about, the, about awakening. And that he, talked, he gave it for some time. At the end of it, he said, a demon like you does not intimidate me. If a demon like you could intimidate me, the arising of the mind of compassion would be of little meaning. Demon, if you were here to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We will talk out our differences. Ah, I feel compassion for the spirit. So something's deepened, hasn't it? He's now willing to be with the demon without trying to get rid of it. And we could say he's willing to be with the fear. That's really what our practice is pointing to. Can I just hang out with it? Again, it's always remembering that, uh, that point that I made in the guided meditation 
that we want to get clear about the level of intensity of the fear. Because there's some fears where our meditative practice, our mindfulness, is not strong enough for the fear. And then we do other things that help us. We use antidotes that help us get back to balance. But when the fear is somewhat workable, is workable enough, then we can use our practices, our mindfulness. So Milarepa is saying, I'm willing to be with you. If you have friends, bring them along. We will talk together. And then the, the end of this is, with friendliness and compassion, and without concern for his body, Milarepa placed himself in the mouth of the demon. Whoa. He placed himself in the mouth of the demon, but the demon could not eat him, and so vanished like a rainbow. Happy ending. <laughs> right? So that's, that's a story. And again, that's, we could take that as metaphorical, but it's saying, can I be with, uh, can I be with the, the fear? Again, when it's in the workable range, and just stay with it. Be mindful. What's it like in my body? Explore it over and over again. That's part of our practice. That's part of our practice. There are a lot of dimensions. Again, uh, you know, maybe next time I'll go more into the uh, further into individual, but also into relational and social ways of working with fear. But here I want to I want to finish by um, really mentioning that in some of the models of how practice develops, it's said that fear arises at deeper levels when we start to see clearly the impermanent flow of our experience. That when we see impermanence very deeply, something is, you know, arouses fear for us. And this is found in for example, one model is that of the stages of insight in the uh, Burmese tradition from Mahasi Sayadaw, who, who's one of the main influences on our mindfulness practice. And he says that when you get to a certain stage of development, you start seeing, and the mind gets very quiet, and you start seeing how everything is arising and passing. And when you stay with this, you go through some fear, some fear. And I, I, I personally have experienced this, that there can be a sense of fear. Gosh, I think the world is really solid, but it's actually just everything's passing, arising and passing really, really quickly. And so there can be a period of fear until one comes to some balance and equanimity about that. I'll just mention that in passing, maybe go into more depth on that next time. And so the, I think the main point here is that as we grow, Fear is going to be there in some way with every new learning. And that's really good to know. And so we want to be able to develop our resources to, so we can work with fear, using mindfulness, bringing in some compassion for ourselves, knowing what to do when the fear is too strong. Particularly here, we can use loving kindness. In the teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha originally, in some of the stories about loving-kindness, it said that the Buddha gave loving-kindness originally to be an antidote to fear to a group of practitioners who were experiencing a lot of fear. Right? And, and so we want to see what to do when there is too much fear. And again, I'll, I think I'll go more into that next time. 
but we want to we want to we want to have these different tools mindfulness compassion loving kindness and and things which develop our our courage and our equanimity so let me finish finish with that gosh i I, I got into talking about fear. The time has gone very quickly. Uh, yeah, let me let me just finish by uh, yeah reminding us that as we as we actually look more and more at fear, fear becomes the monster that grows smaller. Let's just sit for a few moments, then we can have some, some discussion. So let's open things up now if there is a, a question or a sharing and we can I think we will use um, can use either the raised hands or if you have your video on I can see your hand if you raise your hand and this could be a sharing of a way you've worked with fear uh, a challenge of a fearful situation uh, a question about anything I said uh, if you can be on the relatively brief side so we can have time for um, several people. Could be something you shared in your in your practice. Okay, please, um, uh, Jamal, please. Hello. Um, so, I have a question about how we discern what is and isn't in the workable range yeah. of emotions. Like, is it physical sensations? Is it our ability to stay balanced or unexaggerated in the mind? Yeah, yeah, really crucial question. Um, yeah, I think some of what you just mentioned, the ability to stay relatively balanced in the mind. So some signs of, you know, I like to give that um, Olympic diver scale one to ten, and then we want to look like what you know. Uh, some of the characteristics of what I'm calling a nine or a ten would be that mindfulness doesn't really work very well. We can kind of know what's going on, but we're we're more or less lost in the let's say in this case in the fear or the difficult emotion. And so if you actually look, okay, what was my experience like this last minute? I was, uh, you know, maybe I, I had some mindfulness for five seconds, but I had 55 seconds lost in it. That would be a sign. So it's relative degree of attention. It's relative. And we probably also, uh, as we, you know, for each person, we kind of know our patterns. And there, there, might be, uh, there might be kind of a level of physiological activation in which the body is so stirred up that it's very hard to do anything other than try to get out of it or something, right? So we can't really think clearly necessarily uh, or uh, stay balanced, you know. It's gonna, that's going to vary, but so there's going to be 
So we're going to look to a level of physical activation. For example, if there's something like trauma, there for most people, there's a level of activation beyond which we can't, we don't, we don't have control of our experience. It's just, it's so that I think a key would be whether it's at the mental level or the emotional level or at the physical level, it's more like we're almost like taken away by the forces and we don't have much autonomy anymore. Does, does that help get at it some? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, really crucial question. And, and it's really important for each of us to know our own patterns, you know, mental, emotional, physiological, of when things are hard. And then to have almost like a repertoire, what do I do when I'm kind of lost in something, when I'm lost in the thought? And it doesn't necessarily have to be real, real, real intense. We can just be really distracted and lost in the negative, fearful thought, right? Without it being too intense, but we're still lost. We're still not really there. So we want to both have a sense of what it's like for us and then have a repertoire of a few things we can do. You know, again, uh, could be to, you know, general guidelines are open the eyes. If you have your eyes closed, look at something pleasant. That helps the nervous system to get more regulated. Uh, could be doing something physical, take a walk, talk to someone, do loving kindness practice. That can be helpful when, when that practice is well developed. Okay. Thanks. Thanks very much. Okay. Looks like we have uh, uh, Eli. Yeah. Am I pronouncing it right? Yeah. Go ahead. Looks like, are you? Okay, just trying to unmute. Okay, there you um, go. Yeah, I think the, there's a new interface on uh, on uh, Zoom. So um, I guess I was wondering if you could explore the interface of fear and anger. Yeah. It seems to go back and forth. I mean, being fearful can cause you to be angry, and yeah. anger can cause you to be fearful. And I'm wondering if you could explore that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And maybe you want to start just by saying anything that you have have found with that? Uh, no, I guess it's just something I've noticed over, well, since you've been talking about fear. Yeah. And I've sort of noticed that that happens. And so... I just, uh, I'm having a hard time expressing how I've noticed it happen, but I've yeah. been really, really angry with something and then become fearful of my own anger. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, or fearful that the person that I'm angry at or the situation I'm angry at will be actually what I fear it to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it seems very complicated. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a range of experience. I think there can be times when there's um, primarily fear without that much anger. When I was thinking of my own uh, retreat experience where I had fear for those 10 days, <clears throat> I don't think there was much anger you know, in, that, in that situation. It was primarily fear. So there can be primarily fear without too much anger. But then we can imagine a lot of situations <clears throat> or think of them ourselves where 
I might be really uh, angry at some situation in part because I'm fearful of what will happen, right? Yeah, yes. Right, that I could be angry and, <clears throat> you know, I could be angry about, um, you know, I don't know what's happening at work and I could be, you know, it could be very complex. I could be angry about what's happening at work and I might be fearful that I will lose my job, right? Or I could be uh, fearful that if I speak up about what I'm angry about, I'll get punished in some way, right? So, so we can be fear, you know, fear suppresses a lot of anger, right? And there's a, you know, or, or sometimes, you know, like I think my conditioning or personal conditioning around anger was to see anger as a dangerous emotion. Anger was basically suppressed in my family. And so I was scared of anger. It, you know, in, in my family, when it appeared, it would be explosive, right? And so growing up, I was scared of anger. I was scared of my own anger. I was scared of other people's anger, right? And, you know, I'm sure residues are still there of that, but I had to learn uh, to open up to anger without being so afraid of it. But there was a lot of suppression of anger. And again, very, very common in the world. And so anything we suppress, we're basically going to be afraid of because it goes, it goes into the unconscious. That's you know? helpful. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's opening up a lot. I, I didn't, a lot of what I just expressed, I hadn't thought before, right? But, but just making some sense, you know. And then, you know, I could... I could be, you know, I could get into fear. I could imagine situations where I'm fearful of what might happen and then angry at myself for letting me get in the situation. You know, I didn't, I don't think I experienced anger with that experience of my car breaking down. I could imagine another situation where it would break down and I, it was because I, I didn't know there was a problem and I didn't take care of it. And then I found fear, but I was angry at myself for letting myself get in that situation, right? That could be. That's not actually what happened in the when I mentioned it could have been. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, really interesting mix. Yeah. Maybe I'll come back more with that. I think there's a lot there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Other sharing question, just maybe anyone who explored anger in the last uh, few weeks, if you want to share something from what you found, an insight, something that was helpful. I think we're especially interested in how we can practice with this, let's say, in the next week. You know, practice with it both in your inner life and including what you notice out in the larger world. Anyone want to share something from your own experience? Uh, looks like Sylvia, please. Um, I have a question. So sometimes he fears that I avoid the situations by keeping myself busy with something, like, so I don't have to face it, so I don't have to yeah. deal with it. Oh, I be anxious, and I become sad, and so I think this this is the other spectrum of fear, how you react to it, or the situation to it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that's helpful, Sylvia. You know, it, it brings to mind the way that um, we, we have a lot of ways that we uh, don't face our fears, right? We have kind of almost like, could call them almost like defense mechanisms so we don't have to face what's there. You know, or we, or, or maybe it's to, we don't have to, uh, 
deal with a certain part of our life, you know, if we stay busy enough, right? <laughs> That's very, very common. How many can relate to that one? We say, say quite busy. It means, oh, I'm busy. Oh, sorry, didn't have time to deal with that. Didn't have time to deal with that difficult relationship or whatever, right? And so I think... Uh, I think that's that, that's a really important part of our practice. It's to really be open to seeing what are the ways that I don't face something because there's fear there, and what are the mechanisms that I use, like like being busy or distracting yourself. You know, very very common, isn't it? Yeah, yes. just when I when I know I don't want to, you know. I mean, it's sort of a version of a version of not wanting to face something which is difficult or painful in general. And we have our, a whole set of ways of call them avoidance behavior. So that's a really helpful piece, you know. So let's let's look for that also in the next week. Thanks, thanks, Sylvia. Yeah. Any time for one more? Uh, Shannon, please. Just a second, I'm looking for you, Shannon. And there you are. Here I am. Yeah. I'm wondering. Uh, I, I've been thinking since yesterday about the balancing act of when there is conflict, not responding. Yeah. Not in the sense of suppressing or compartmentalizing, which is another option, or distracting, which yeah. is another option, but just finding a way to almost neutrally be with it, like sensation, it's sensation. Yeah. It's, not, it's that same, not clinging to it, not reliving, not pre-living a conversation that's not happening, or reliving a conversation that's yeah. happened. Yeah. But the, it's it's a pretty fine balancing act because when I think about it more, there are habits, and then there are cultural norms, and then there are all of the normal temptations. So if there's an unsettled conflict, it could be very tempting to turn on Disney Plus or yeah, yeah. stick it in a drawer and not think about it. I'm not going to think about it, which isn't healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Slack um, rope exercise. In yeah. The end. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. Yeah. Let's let's think of that situation with uh, uh, an unresolved conflict. And of course, it's uh, you know the best case scenario there'd be let's say be with two people. In the best case scenario, there'd be a willingness to uh, work constructively together with it, and and the hope that pe both people have the skills to be, uh, to do it well, right? That's, you know, that is not always going to be the case. So let's just think in, more in terms of looking at what, for the time being, one's own mind. If we were going to be really comprehensive, we'd want to talk about the relational dimensions and, uh, you know, when is a good time and so forth. But, um, you know, what, what is good timing? But here, I think in relation to what you're bringing up, um, the key would be to uh, I think just, just to give some time, let's say I have an unresolved conflict, even to have in one's formal meditation, maybe at the end, just give myself a few minutes to bring up the conflict 
and see what's there. Some of it will come up naturally in the day or in one's formal meditation. But I think it's very helpful to really just to explore what's there for me. Where is there fear or anxiety? Let me be with that. You know, to what extent am I going into narratives that I repeat over and over again? And one of the tools which we use, which I use in the transforming the judgmental mind work is when I notice a repetitive narrative just going over and over into the same storyline, it's to actually let me actually go into my body, move away from the from the mental narrative dimension and go into the body, which often can help us access the underlying emotions, which can be very, very helpful with that kind of uh, unresolved conflict. Just to hang out there, and there might be fear, but there might there might be anger and so forth, but to, uh, yeah, just to study and to kind of, I think uh, my sense is that you would you'd know quite well when you're being more escapist, and sometimes a little bit of escapism is okay, right? <laughs> Right, uh, they, um, there can be skillful escapism, right, and uh, yeah, and and there can be unskillful escapism. It may be a matter of degree. So those are a few things. I think we're, we're probably just beginning to get at what you asked, though. <laughs> so maybe to be continued next time. Yeah, thank you, Shannon. Great. So let's. Let's finish up now. Thanks, thanks everyone. Feels, yeah, feels uh, very alive. How many people would be interested in exploring any instances in the next week when fear arises? Okay, let's let's explore that, and then come back uh, next time. I'll take it a little bit further. Some of the areas that I had in my notes I didn't get to. So let's finish in two ways. First, to set your intention for your practice in the next period of time. What's going to help me to remember to work with fear or anxiety when they come up? Maybe setting an intention every day. And then we, we close with the dedication of merit, remembering that we do this practice for ourselves, but we also do it for others. I think the focus on fear makes that very clear that when we, when we become more and more skillful with fear, we give gifts to others. Very, very powerful. And so may our time together be a benefit to us, be a benefit to those in our own circles, and then beyond our own circles, may our time together, our practice together, be of benefit in known ways and in mysterious ways to all beings. May our time together be a benefit to all, knowing that we are part of all beings.
So thanks everyone for your kind attention. Feel free now if you'd like to unmute and we could say goodbye. We'll do our little movement if you like. And uh, thank you, Carlita. Thank you, Donald. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, till next time. Great time. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm here for the class on mindful distractions. Whenever you do that, <laughs> I'm there for it. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay, till next time. Thanks, Carlita. Thank you so much. Have a good week. Thank you. Take Bye -bye. care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.